we have some interesting things coming up in the fall. A couple of events. Uh, God is doing things. I'm processing it. I'm trying to figure out what he's up to, trying to keep up. We'll be talking about that more next week. So I'm starting. I feel like uh, we're going to work through the, the book of John. I may not hit every verse. We may skip through it. I uh, haven't decided, but I'm starting today with John 1. Uh, but bear in mind that I'm going to be uh, interspersing in there tangents of other things God's doing. Uh, I'm just trying to keep up. So, you know, we'll see what happens. All right. But for this morning, <clears throat> we want to be looking at John chapter 1. I'm just going to look at the first 18 verses if you want to open your Bibles and have them ready. John chapter 1, 1 through 18 where John talks about Jesus being the Word of God. <clears throat> now, before we do this, because this is a little bit unique, uh, where John does, John's the only one who uses that title. <clears throat> uh, I want to talk a little bit about the word, word. Uh, in the Bible, there's two words that are commonly in the Greek uh, used for the word, word, logos and rhema. Uh, and it's about a five to one ratio. You see logos about five times as often as you see rhema. And it's important that we understand these uh, on a broad level before we do this chapter or we really won't get what's going on. And so you've probably heard before people describe the difference between logos and rhema as uh, logos is the written word, rhema is the spoken word, or logos is uh, a general word to everyone, and rhema is a personal word to an individual. And while that is true, it's uh, only part of the truth. It's way bigger than that, and it's, it's not super concise and simple uh, and easy to quantify. So just keep that in mind. If you, if you look up the Greek uh, logos, what it means it's translated different things at different times uh, based largely on context. It can be translated word or reason or principle or speech or idea. So it's very broad and uh, a little bit hard to nail down. Uh, and it's where it's at least one of the words from which we derive our modern word logic. Okay? And so when you're reading it, sometimes, like you're reading in Timothy, it says all scripture is given by inspiration from God. It just, means, it just means the Bible. Sometimes it means much more. And in this context, I think we're going to find uh, John's addressing something more. Now, uh, what we need to get into is uh, Stoicism. Anybody know what Stoicism is? Great. One person. All right. Good. Modern term, if you say someone is stoic, it means they're, they're very unemotional, they're very, you know, controlled and all that. And it, it comes out of the, the, the exaltation of reason. Stoicism is all about reason. But uh, we need to understand more of this because this was a philosophy that was going on at this time. Stoicism is a philosophy uh, started about 300 B.C., and it, it, it built on, like Alexander, for, not Alexander, um, Aristotle, for example, logos, ethos, pathos, uh, logic, uh, ethics, passion, or emotion. And these were the core things. And of those, uh, 
Stoics really fastened on to logos. And uh, I don't know if uh, the Apostle John, you know, took a philosophy class at Galilee Community College or something <laughs> before he went fishing, but I think he was kind of addressing this as we're going to see as we get into John 1. So let's look at what Stoic logos meant, the Greek word logos. It is a Greek concept, right? So uh, in Stoic logos, it was the, as, uh, the abstract principle of reason exhibited by an orderly universe. In other words, they looked around, they saw order in the universe, and they said there must be an orderer, and it was uh, an abstract principle of reason. Reason must have done this. The universe is reasonable. It's ordered. So they were way ahead of evolutionists, at least. Um, they at least recognized order. Now, that's the short definition. Here's the definition that is a little bit more encompassing. And as you can see, it's an entire paragraph. So we're talking about, when we're talking about logos, uh, we're referencing a whole philosophy here. So you need to know that because we're going to see the word a whole bunch in this first chapter. So uh, Stoics saw the universe as a single living whole permeated by an impersonal, very important that we note that. To the Stoics, this was impersonal, because that's going to be the real difference. Uh, permeated by an impersonal, never-resting, fiery vapor possessing thought. I th find it interesting that they had the fiery thing in there. They had more right than they realized. Uh, represented in people as a soul, and here's the thing, it, it contained life within itself, and uh, or contain within itself the processes of all things. So trees and birds and humans and all that are all contained in this logos, right? And it's a universal, universal generative principle. In other words, everything that was created was created somehow by this logos. This is the Stoic philosophy. Uh, it is life-giving energy. It supplies the standard for rational order and moral conduct. So for human beings, if you're a Stoic, what you're trying to do is live in harmony with Logos, with the thing that orders the universe and provides a moral uh, basis for conduct. Otherwise, uh, there's no reason to have morals, right? And so this is what they believed. In fact, there was a, a, a Jewish apologist named Philo who lived in Alexandria. Alexandria was in northern Africa and was famous for the, one of the seven wonders of the world, the great library of Alexandria, which burned down. I would love to have seen some of the books in there, uh, but it's gone now. Um, anyway, he was a Jewish apologist uh, at the time of Jesus, about the same time that Jesus was walking the earth. And, and uh, Stoicism was a big deal when Jesus was walking the earth. It was a big philosophy. And so he uh, was trying to meld Jewish wisdom from the Old Testament with Greek Stoicism, Stoicism, or Logos. And so he came up with the idea of God as an impersonal, again, underline impersonal, mediator in creation, in revelation, in human activity. So this is a prominent idea. And uh, the reason I'm hitting all this is because I think John is in part addressing this in John chapter 1. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, why are we talking about Stoicism? I don't even hear about it anymore. I'm not a Stoicist. Well, it 
addresses a question that we need to answer, each of us, for ourselves. I'm going to give you a lot of questions to answer for yourself. And it's important. Uh, they're not just rhetorical. Uh, I'm leaving them unanswered because you need to answer them. It doesn't matter if you get the same answer I get only because that's the answer I gave you. It matters what you believe. And so I want you to wrestle with these questions and go, do I really believe this? And so the first question is, how personal or impersonal is God in practice? Because all of us will say, no, 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 uh, we're not Stoicists. Uh, we believe in a personal God, not an impersonal God, right? However, in practice, do we really believe in a personal God? Or in practice, do we feel like God is more impersonal? In other words, what I call creeping stoicism. Stoicism creeping into the church. God isn't really that personal. He's kind of a far off. He's sort of set things up and he's sort of given us principles. But it's really up to us to kind of learn how to live in harmony with God and just try and follow the rules as best we can and just try and stand and deal with all the stuff that flows downhill at us. We really can't influence the stuff. Uh, God's just a little personal, right? Is that what you believe? No, good. But do you see where stoicism creeps into the church? Where we begin to set God in a distance and we move in that direction where we believe that uh, the one who ordered everything and holds everything together isn't really paying that much attention to me and isn't really uh, doing the stuff. And I can't really influence what he's up to. So, creeping stoicism. I want you to think about that because uh, in John 1, we see John introducing Jesus as the Word of God, as a title. Jesus as the Logos. And this is unique to John. John's the only one who does this. He does this in John 1. He does this in 1 John chapter 1, first verse, where he refers to Jesus as the living word. And he does this in uh, Revelation 19, where he has his revelation or vision of Jesus, and he sees Jesus on the horse, and he, and he says, and his name is called the word of God, the logos of God. So uh, I want you to have this broad definition of logos in your mind, even this Greek definition of logos in your mind, because I, I think... Uh, what John is essentially doing here is, is addressing it, saying, I recognize that there's some stuff there that's true. Uh, the part you have wrong is the impersonal part. Uh, I'm going to tell you who Logos is. He's going to tell the Greeks, this Logos you believe in, I'm going to tell you who he is. Okay, so let's begin to look at this. All right, in John chapter 1, I want to look at verses 1 through 5 to start. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now everywhere in here where you see Word, it's the word Logos. And so, do you see the language he's using, how that would kind of appeal to the Stoicists. Let's look at the points. I just want to tick off the, the doctrinal points. These are important doctrinal points for us to have as believers in Jesus. These are non-negotiables. Uh, these are clear in Scripture, not debatable. Uh, John's made them very clear. They are these in verse 1 and 2. 
Jesus is from the beginning. He is ancient. He has been before the earth was. He was. He is, right? So Jesus is from the beginning. He was with God, and he is God. Uh, that's an important point. A lot of other religions will argue about that last one. Jesus is God. And, verse 3, everything was made through him. Everything. The entire universe. Everything we see. You were made through him. Everything that was made back then, everything that's made now, uh, he didn't make it and just leave it uh, like deists kind of believe that God made the universe and then wandered off and left it running like a clock. Uh, <laughs> He didn't do that. He's paying attention. Everything that is made, everything that was made yesterday was made through him. And verses 4 and 5, he contains life within himself. This is important. Jesus contains life within himself, and his life is the light of men. Without the life of Jesus, we have no light. We have no understanding. We don't know what we're doing. We walk in darkness, we bump into things, we fall down. Okay? It's very clear. His, he contains light, and his, I'm sorry, life, and his life is light to us. It is the light of men. That is the only thing that brings light in the earth. All right? And so, then it says, his light shines in darkness, but darkness cannot understand it in some Translations will say overcome it. The word, the Greek word can be translated either way. And they both work. They're both true. So his light shines in darkness, and the darkness can understand the light, and it can't overcome the light. Now, the reason he's pointing this out, if God created everything and called it all good, uh, where'd the darkness come from? Well, there, there was a fall. And so at the fall, the earth entered into darkness, right? And us as well. And so uh, yet there's still the evidence of God in that. I'll show you what I mean. Um, his light shines in darkness absolutely means that when Jesus came, we have the prophetic verses uh, that uh, those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And that's a reference to Jesus coming uh, as a child and, and growing up as a man and displaying uh, the glory of God, right? But it also means that the creation itself from before Jesus came as a man, displayed the glory of God, and is a light in the darkness, is a, is a testimony of God. Just as the Stoics said, all this order, we recognize all this order means there's an orderer, there's a God. We just think he's impersonal, and it's just kind of a force, right? They didn't have lightsabers, but it was similar. All right, <clears throat> so... We see this from Paul's writings also in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation, that's way before Jesus came, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. You see what Paul's saying there? That the glory of God has been revealed by creation from the get-go. It can be clearly seen that there is an orderer in the universe, in the earth. And even the Stoics got that. 
Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so again, the darkness cannot comprehend, cannot understand. So we have both of those things going on. We have Jesus uh, as a light in the world, literally as a person, and Jesus as the creator, the evidence of his creation is a light in the world, but the darkness can't understand that. So for us, we need to get out of the darkness, right? The Stoics get that there's a created order that points to God. They just don't get that it's a personal God. Now, since we brought Paul into this in Romans, I'm going to take a little commercial break here, and let's see what else Paul has to say about this. Um, because again, I'm building the case that John is addressing, uh, I think, the Stoic philosophy that's prevalent at that time and, and showing clearly that there's, there's some truth in this. Uh, they just didn't get the personal part right. So let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17, where Paul very concisely expresses all the same things that John's going to express in John chapter 1. And again, look at the language that he uses. In fact, this passage, uh, Stoicists will use this passage to try and prove that Paul was a Stoicist. They'll ignore a lot of other Bible, uh, and they'll ignore the personal part of it, but that's how much this reads like Stoic thought. Colossians 1, 15-17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And here's the kicker. In him, all things consist. And that word consist means uh, are held together. Literally, he holds at an atomic level all of creation together. Uh, won't get into the physics on that this time. Uh, but things should not hold together. And yet they do. So uh, we see Paul teaching these exact same things as dogma, as doctrine. That Jesus is uh, the Logos, the Word of God that holds all things together. In fact, we see it real clearly in Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens and he's wandering around, minding his own business, noticing they have a whole bunch of gods and a whole bunch of statues. And so Paul, he can only mind his own business for so long because he's an evangelist. So he starts talking to them uh, about their philosophy. And here's what we read. This is interesting. In verse 18, it says, among them, there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So who was there? Stoicists. Tells us they were right there. And in verse 23, it says, he points to a statue of an unknown God. He goes, hey, I notice you got a God you don't know. Let me tell you about him. And he describes him in verse 25 as the one that gives life to all things. And check out verse 28. This is this unique passage. It's in this context of talking to the Stoicists. He says Jesus is the one who in him we live and move and have our being. He's saying, guys, this is that logos you've been looking for. It's not a force. It's a person. It's Jesus. And so this is what... John, I believe, is saying in verses 1 through 5, the, and I have a reason why uh, I want you to see it this way, so we'll, we'll get to that. Hey, be patient. Hang with me. So the Logos, the Word of God, it's way, way, way bigger and broader than we realize. It's kind of mind-blowingly big. Uh, 
okay? If you just want to experiment for a moment, consider what it would be like to be sitting here and aware of every atom in the universe. Everybody done? And that's what it's describing. Jesus is intimately aware and holding together everything. So that's pretty big. All right. So let's keep going. I want to go through verse 18. There's some good stuff here. Uh, so let's read 10 through 18. I'm going to skip 6 through 9 because it's either redundant or just talking about, there's a couple of places where it talks about John the Baptist as the one who testified to the light. So John the Baptist is the one who testified to the light. Any questions? Good. Okay. Um, picking up with verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name, who are not born of blood, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a huge verse. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then there's another John bore witness to him. Uh, verse 16, and of his fullness we have received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one, or man, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared it. All right, there is some good stuff in here about Jesus. Here we go. First, verse 10. He came into the world, he made, but it didn't recognize him. He entered his own creation, and it didn't recognize him. Why not? Because the darkness can't understand the light. You'll read more about that in John chapter 3, right? Verse 11, he came to his own people, the Jews, and they did not receive him. Of course, we have that from the histories, right? Verse 12, to those who did believe in him or received him, he empowered them. He gave them grace to be children of God. Now, let's pause here for a minute. Verse 12, um, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right. The word right there is the Greek word exousia, which is often translated authority or power. So he gave anyone who would believe in him the power to act like a child of God, the authority to act like a child of God. Are you with me? Like a child of Logos, the one who permeates everything and holds all things together and creates with a word. He gave us the authority and power to act like his children. And uh, to those who believe in his name. And so, where am I at? All right. Um, what I want you to see is one, we're empowered to be his children. And two, being God's children implies access, doesn't it? Do your children have access to you? Do they have access to your stuff? Yeah, whether you want them to or not. <laughs> right? I want you to think about this. The Logos, this broad, all-encompassing God, intimately active in creation, has said, I've given you power and authority to be my children as children uh, 
Revelation says we inherit all things. As children, we have access to everything he's up to, everything he's doing, everything he has. So do we have access to this logos? Think about this. What implications does this have? We'll discuss this further. All right. So, verse 12, access to logos. Verse 13, uh, we have this access through being born, not of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. He is talking about being born of the Spirit, or born again. And once again, we'll read more about this in John chapter 3. Everybody knows that passage in John chapter 3, right? So we'll worry about that later. Uh, you must be born again. Jesus will say that, John will say that, well, Jesus will say that, and John will write it down in John chapter 3. We'll get there. But that's what he's talking about here, that we get this access through being a born again in Jesus, born into the family, accepted in the beloved, accepted in the logos, access to the logos in all of its connotations. And so here's the kicker, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where John is going to diverge with what the Stoicists believe. He says this, this logos that you believe creates and empowers and gives life and encompasses, the only thing you have wrong is it's a man. He became a man. Not only did he become a man, he walked among us. It's not impersonal. It's intensely personal. I met him. John in John 1 says, I touched him. I know him. I know Logos. He, he's a friend of mine. You with me? So he's declaring the Logos, this all-encompassing thing, became man, came into his creation, and dwelt among us. It's very personal. And it says he was revealed or he revealed glory like a son of God. What, what John's basically saying here is, not only did he come and dwelt among us, he manifested glory like you'd expect one of God's kids to manifest. He revealed glory like a son of God. I love the, the word uh, only begotten son here is a monogenes. It means, mono means one. Uh, genes is where we get our word genetics. So it means, only begotten son means he's the only one that's genetically God. We're all sons by adoption. But he's, now I don't know if God's spirit and we're flesh. I don't know if he has genetics like we have genetics. I don't know if he has DNA. Whatever he's got, Jesus has it. Okay? He's genetically God. He is begotten, not made. So uh, it says he is the only one, and he revealed glory like somebody who's just like God like somebody who's a genetic son of God. He acted like God, all right? And, and it says he came full of grace and truth. Now, uh, I always, I've told you this several times, grace I think is best understood as empowerment. Sure, forgiveness is in there and mercy is in there. But grace is best understood as empowerment. God empowers us by grace to live uh, according to logos. And truth uh, is the basis by which we understand. And so um, the Stoics were looking to uh, go along with 
they, they looked at logos as the thing that imparted uh, creative order and morality, and they just try to be in harmony with it. So John's saying here, truth has come. You can actually understand God himself, and you can understand morality from the man who explained it to us. On the Sermon on the Mount, he covered a whole bunch of morality for us, right? And so uh, we can now, because he came in truth, we can understand creation. We can understand morality. We can understand the expectations God has on, <clears throat> on his creation. <clears throat> Pardon me, right? And not only that, we received grace. We received empowerment. In fact, verse 16 says, uh, and of his fullness, we have received grace for grace. We received empowerment from his fullness. Take a moment to consider what the heck his fullness is. The God who holds every molecule in the universe together. That's big fullness. Amen. And we, John says, we partook of that. We got, we got us some of that. That's good. You with me? Okay, guys, this might be bigger than we realize. We've been empowered from his fullness. Verse 17, he says, he makes a comparison. He says, uh, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, again, those two things, came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law was human conduct um, according to the rules that God had laid out, according to the law, uh, by largely human effort, right? You just, you grew up, you're Jewish, here's the law, you do this, you do this, if you screw up and you will screw up, you take this critter, you do this with the critter, you're good with God again, until you screw up next time and you get another critter, right? That's the law. There was, uh, and it's not that different from the Stoics. Uh, God ordered the universe, he, uh, he made it, this impersonal force made it, and there's morality in here. We can't influence that. We haven't really have any power to do anything about it other than do our best to try and live in harmony with it by our own human effort. Understand, Stoicism emphasized human effort in trying to live in harmony with this impersonal logos. And it's not that different than the human effort required to try and live under the law Everything changed when Jesus came. It became grace and truth. It became empowerment. You have grace to be a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away. All things become new. You have now been empowered to uh, not give in to your flesh. You now have truth and understanding. You aren't just following laws because if you don't, you've got to sacrifice an animal. You're following laws uh, because God's written them on your heart. And you understand why they're important. And you understand the heart of God because it's been revealed to you through Jesus. You understand the difference. And so we've gone much further here. And now we're living under grace. And so this is what John's trying to get them to understand. Now, and then it ends with verse 18, which I love. It says, no, no one has seen God at any time, meaning the Father, of course, uh, the only begotten Son, the monogenesis, uh, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, the word declare there means declare or explain. It is the Greek word uh, exegiomai, where we get our 
English word exegesis, which if you go to Bible school, they will tell you means explaining scriptures. I'm exegeting right now. <laughs> I'm exegeting, y'all. Uh, it just means to explain in detail, to go verse by verse and explain the scriptures in that context. And so I want you to understand what it's saying. It's saying Jesus came. No one's ever seen what God's like. So you Stoics, you, you see the evidence of God in creation. You have no idea what he's like. Jesus came and exegeted God. He gave us a detailed explanation of what God is like, line upon line, precept upon precept. Here's how he thinks. Here's how he acts. We learned a lot about the love of God that we maybe didn't understand before through Jesus, right? And so Jesus exegetes God. He explains God. He is the living explanation of God because he is God. He is the only genetic copy of God. You with me? Again, so this is big. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews expresses this same concept. So I'm just going to read it because it, it's good. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So he's, God's been communicating with the world somewhat through the prophets, but now I'm going to send Jesus and I'm going to speak to you through him. Whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. There's that doctrinal point again. Who being the brightness of his glory. Remember, uh, John said he came and displayed glory like God. So here he's called the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The word upholds all things, holds all things together great big God but super personal God that's hard for us to grasp isn't it let's go one further John references him as the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father do you remember in John 13 and then again in John 21 there's a reference to one of the apostles who at the last supper reclined and laid his head on Jesus breast you guys remember that Remember who that apostle was? Yeah. He just, he's being modest, so he just refers to it as the apostle who laid himself on Jesus' breast in his book, uh, Let the Reader Understand. <laughs> now that is a position of intense intimacy. So catch what John's saying. All of this had happened by the time John wrote John 1. Jesus has already been crucified and risen, right? And so John's saying, hey, you remember that time I had this deep intimacy with Jesus where I was laying on his breast and I could just lean over and ask him a question about who's going to betray him because we all wanted to know? Jesus did that with the Father. That intimacy that I had with Jesus, that's the intimacy Jesus had with the Father. That's the intimacy that God wants to have with us. That's the intimacy I can have with the Father. I can lean on the Father's breast. Amen. He's saying not only is Logos intensely personal, he's intensely intimate. You can lean on him. You can lean on his breast. I did. I leaned on his breast at the Last Supper. 
Jesus does that with the Father. I've learned what they're like. They're intimate. They're close. We can be close with them, getting an idea of what John's trying to convey here. Now, the reason I'm going through all this is this. I want you to see that Jesus being the word is not a metaphor. It's not uh, just a, a, an example or a picture, like Jesus is the word in like whatever he says goes. That literally, he is the logos in every possible way, in every, uh, other than the impersonal part, in every way the Greeks thought of logos. And in every way that Paul and John talk about. It. He is the logos in every way. He is a big God. He is very big. He holds everything together. He is very personal. Remember, he knows if I asked Jesus if he were here, and I, and I didn't have any better questions than I do, and I said, how many hairs are on that one's head? He'd tell me. He knows every one of them. Remember he said that? There's all the hairs in your head? He's that big and that intimate. If a sparrow falls to the ground today, anywhere on the earth, guess who knows? He does. Sermon on the Mount. I know all this. I know everything's going on. Every animal that dies, I know about it. That's a lot. Think about that. We need to think about that. Because sometimes we don't feel like God's paying attention to our life. Don't we? That was the point he was making about the sparrows. Dude, I know about sparrows. You're more important. That's what he said. Big God. Intensely personal. Intensely intimate. Logos, huge. You're getting why the concept is hard to define when we talk about Jesus the Word, how broad, how expansive it is. Now, here's what I want us to consider. Here comes the fun part, all the questions that you can consider on your own. The Stoics didn't believe they could influence the creative order. The best they could hope for was to be in harmony with it. But the Logos, he obviously influences the creative order. He just speaks, and the creative order changes, right? He just speaks, and, and storms go away. He just speaks, and they're somewhere else. He just speaks, and people that can't walk start walking. People that can't see start seeing. He just speaks, and that stuff happens, yes. right? Yes. Here's the question. Stoics don't believe they can influence the creative order. Can empowered children of Logos influence creation? Think about it. Can empowered children of God speak a word and influence like God does? Or, when I talked about creeping Stoicism, do we believe that God just sort of acts and the best we can do is try and keep up and deal with what comes against us? Do we really believe we can, as empowered children, take up the logos in our mouth yes. and create an influence? Yes. These are the questions I want to ask. Let's look at a few verses and some specifics. And I want to ask some specific questions. And again, the answers that I'm hoping for should be obvious. But I want us to, I want you to think about these. Because it doesn't matter what our verbal answer is as much as what we believe. And uh, I want my answer to get better. 
So in, uh, let's look at a couple places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where logos occurs again. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God, the logos of God is living and powerful, right? It's alive and it's powerful. That book in your lap is full of logos that's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can discern what our heart is up to. And so what I'm wondering is, can it change our hearts? Can we order our own hearts through declaring his word? Remember, God, through speaking his word, orders the universe. Can we, through speaking logos into our inner man, order our own hearts? Can we do that? Can we change our hearts just through speaking the logos? By the way, spoiler alert, Rachel's been doing it for a few weeks, months. Started, started getting hit by anxiety in the middle of the night. It was really obviously a demonic attack. But it, didn't, but it was a battle. So you know what she did? She got her seven, was it seven verses? Uh, seven logoses. And uh, she started using a little clicker and saying them several times. She just went to war with the Word of God. She started changing uh, her inner atmosphere. She started changing her heart with logos. She started declaring logos over her heart. And, uh, and she's winning. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but she's winning. It's very minor now. It's almost gone. Apparently, we can order our own hearts through declaring his word. Might take a little persistence. Just a thought. John 8, 31, 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my logos, if you stay in my logos, you, can, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Can abiding in his word, deeply consuming his word, make us free of the world's influences? Can it? Oh, I tried that. I tried it for a whole week. It didn't work. I refer you to abide. Can deeply consuming his word make us free of the world's influences? Sounds like it might be able to. I'm wanting this to see this bigger, guys. I'm trying to expand your thoughts and your horizons with the word. Let's look at Rhema a couple times because we talked about, uh, even though uh, Logos is much more common, I don't want you to group Rhema as something different. Rhema is still as empowered as Logos. It's just Rhema. I'll, in fact, we just looked at Hebrews 1 and verse 3, where it says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's rhema. He upholds all things by the rhema of his power. It's exactly as empowered as logos. It's just different, as in it's just spoken. So maybe it's a prophetic word. So can a prophetic word, if it's really from God, be as empowered as the logos? Sounds like it. Sounds like it can do stuff. So let's look at a couple rhemas. In John chapter 6, interesting thing is going on. He's fed 5,000 people. He's gone across the sea. They've followed him because they want breakfast. And they're trying to subtly talk him into giving them breakfast. And he says, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they go, gross, dude. Uh, what are you talking about? 
right? You remember the story. Because he knows they're just after breakfast, not really after him. And it's in this context that he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The rhema that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, just like the logos. But Simon, and then, uh, so they all go, no, if we're not getting breakfast and you're going to keep saying weird things, we're out of here. So they leave. And he, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and he turns to the disciples and goes, y'all want to go too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the rhema of eternal life. Now, here's my question. Can we speak words to others that impart life? Yes. Not just encourage them, but actually impart something where, where life goes into them. And they are somehow... Uh, changed by our words. Can we do that? Can, can empowered children of God do that? Hmm. All right. Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the rhema of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are invisible. Huh. Can we by faith just create stuff out of invisibility with the rhema of God? Can we just start speaking over our business and create prosperity in a business? Can we just start speaking things over our children that we don't even see and create it in them? The reign of God, is that, can we do that? Is the reign of God in our mouth that powerful? It's just a question I'd like you to ponder. Let's look at a couple places in the Old Testament, which obviously aren't rhema or logos because they're Hebrew and not Greek, but it's still the word. So let's see if the principle holds. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. All of the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. So again, we see he ordered the universe by his word. Amen. Psalm 107, 20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Can we just send his word and heal and deliver people? I mean, not even go ourselves, just send the word. Can we do that? Like in Matthew 8, where the centurion said, Jesus, I got a servant who's sick. And he said, I'll come heal him. And the centurion says, nah, I know how authority works. You just say it. It'll happen. And he goes, dude, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. Done. I'll just send the word and heal him. And he did. Can empowered children of God do that? Can we just send the word and heal and deliver Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. He describes how his word works here. It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So he's describing this whole process of seed being watered and growing and becoming bread. And it sounds like a whole lengthy natural process, right? He says, So shall my word be, that goes forth from my mouth. It's just like this. It's like seed that's sown. And over time, it produces. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. So he's saying, look, I speak. I send up my word, and it does stuff. It accomplishes. It doesn't just come back and go, eh, we couldn't get it done. Never does that. Just like when you plant seeds, stuff grows. Might take time. Might be a 
a season of waiting might be a season of watering, but my word accomplishes what I send it to accomplish. Which brings me to the question, can we, through consistently declaring his word, order our little universe? Can we order our home through the declaration of his word? Can we order our cities? Can we order our nation through the declaration of his word, through, through prayers, through belief, through faith in his word, through speaking his word instead of our own words? It's just a thought, just a question. I would like to, uh, I mean, I say yes to all those, but I'd like my yes to be bigger. You know what I mean? Because I don't see this in my life to the degree I want to. So I want to go for it. I don't believe I understand fully how empowered God's words in my mouth are. I don't believe I fully understand it. I don't believe God's church fully understands how empowered his words in our mouth are. How empowered the children of God are. If we can learn to put our faith there, if we can just keep taking steps in that direction, Amen. who knows what his church can do. I just want to, this thing is bigger than, it's just big, isn't it? Yes. I, I was, as I was preparing this, I'm going, I'm trying to find concise definitions for logos, and it just keeps blowing my mind. <laughs> and all I'm getting from this is, I need to think bigger. I have way more power and authority through using his word than I realize, and I need to get my faith to catch up to this. So I'm going to work on that. How about you?